Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Bibles and turn to Exodus or your devices, pull up Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter one again. We're on this year long journey uh, through the book of Exodus together. So if you'll grab those and we'll pick up, we're going to overlap last week just a bit uh, by going to verse six is where we're going to start just to put some things in context. And then we're going to uh, just dig in and finish chapter one today. So buckle up. There's a lot to cover. A lot of things happening here in, in chapter one. Um, as, as we get going, I talked about last week how Exodus really fits into a, a greater story. Uh, and so a way for us to uh, just stay on track with this is we, we wanna give you a couple of ways <clears throat> at home to study, whether on your own or with your family. And so up here, there's a, a QR code, which if you don't know how to use this by now, um, there are teenagers who can help you. And so, or there's probably even elementary school students who will come down and tutor you of how to do this. Uh, but you can just scan this with your camera app. It should pull up a link if you need to walk forward to get closer, totally fine. Uh, you can do that, but this will pull up a study guide for you. This will be at the first part of our series. This will get us to the summer. Um, discussion questions, um, resources, all types of things on there. If you want more, you can go to our website, SharonChurch.com. You can get more resources on there. There are uh, tutorials and videos and books you can buy, all sorts of things. And if, if you have a family, I wanna invite you to Oh, yep, there's to download this family discipleship guide as well. If you're like me, um, the idea, and I know that we're told all the time that we're supposed to be the primary disciples of our kids, um, and that's, that's great for people to say, but they haven't met my kids, and so I don't know how they expect me to do this. And maybe you feel like it's just overwhelming, you're not qualified, it's not, you don't have enough education. I get all of that. And so we've written a discipleship guide for families, for kids, and it's super simple. Uh, so it'll take us through the first 10 weeks of this series, just ways to start conversations with your kids um, about Jesus through the Exodus. So if you wanna download that, you can, you can go right to your phone. You actually save it onto your phone. Uh, if you wanna do that, um, if you need a printed copy, just email me and I can send you that as well and you can, you can print it yourself or I can print it for you, but we, let's, we can do that together. Again, tons of resources. This is gonna be a year-long journey and I don't just want this to be something that uh, you learn because I say something or Daryl says something or Chris, whoever's teaching, says something. I want this to be because you've studied the word of God with us together. Good? All right, so the book of Exodus fits into a longer narrative and I talked about last week how um, I've just started to try to watch all the Marvel movies chronologically uh, because I, I like Iron Man. I'll be honest, I like Batman better, uh, but Iron Man seems funny. And so I, I like him, but I didn't understand how it all worked together. And then Marvel does this thing where they put the really important stuff at the end of their credits of a movie, which feels really dumb to me. Like if it's that important, just put it right in the middle and then make it flash. Let me know I need to know this. Uh, but this is, this is how Marvel has decided to do things. And apparently it's worked out fine for them. Uh, but so Marvel is that way. Like you can, you can drop in and pick up Iron Man 2 and you can see what's going on. Let's, let's take it out of Marvel and let's just talk about Fast and the Furious. You can, you can look at Fast and Furious 21 and you know, it's the, it's the same Vin Diesel that was in season, in the first, that's fine. But Marvel builds on itself. The Bible is a lot like that. And particularly here in the beginning, uh, for us, and we need to understand that. So it fits inside of a grander narrative. 
So what I wanna do this morning is I'm gonna read these verses, verses six through 22. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible if you want to. I'm gonna read out the English Standard Version, whatever Bible you're gonna read out of, read out of that one. Uh, but I'm gonna read out of that and I'm gonna read the whole thing so we see the breadth of what's happening. You, you might pick up on some clues of what's happening. And then we're gonna walk back through it in context to see uh, what God has for us. So let's do this. Exodus chapter one, starting in verse six. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So this is the beginning of what we know as the Exodus. And many of us have picked up after this, right? We've picked up with Moses, a little, little tiny baby placed in a basket and then uh, sent down the Nile River. So we pick up there and we don't understand why. Why that happened? Why is he in a basket? Why the Nile? And all of that kind of context happens for us. But there's bigger context for us that has to happen. So I'm gonna give us a few things. Uh, this is some of what we did Wednesday night in our core class. I'm gonna give us just a broad understanding here. First of all is this. The Bible is what's called ancient Jewish meditation literature, which just rolls off the tongue. But if you're gonna write that down, you take notes, you can do that. And it, it's distinct as a form, a literary form. It is distinct. And it's not the only ancient Jewish meditation literature. There's other ones, but this is, this is the sacred text that we study. So a few things that are important in the description of what it is. First of all, it's ancient, meaning it wasn't written to us Southerners in Georgia in 2022. It was written thousands of years ago. And at best case, the New Testament starts 2,000 years ago. Before that, we're 4,000, 5,000 years before that. And what's funny is if you have kids, they can't even imagine life before cell phones. Many of you can't imagine life with a flip phone. Except for Stetson Bennett, apparently he likes it. 
And then, but if think about your own, think about your life. Can you, can, can you, can you fathom life 60, 70, 100 years ago? Can you imagine what life was like before the automobile? Can you imagine what life was like uh, before the microwave or the convection oven? Now, take that and extrapolate that out 4,000 years. How are we doing? Right? So it makes sense when we read scripture. I, I don't understand it. Well, we shouldn't understand it. We don't live like they live. So it's ancient. Secondly, it's Jewish. This is a Jewish book a Jewish collection of scrolls. It's not meant for many of us Gentiles. We don't understand a lot of this. So you start talking feasts and festivals and laws and regulations and, and we turn our nose up at it because we're so much better than those crazy Jews, but it, that's what it is. We gotta put it in context. It's ancient, it's Jewish, and secondly, it's meditation literature. I don't want you to freak out that I said meditation in church. What it means is um, it takes some time to read this. And it takes some time to grasp and understand the Bible. So I'm gonna give you permission in this way. It's okay to not understand it right now. It's okay. It's okay to be confused by some of the, some of the wordage and some of the uh, pictures that are happening. It's okay. But what's great about ancient Jewish meditation literature is the more you read it, the more you begin to understand it. And the more you steep yourself in it, the more you begin to understand it. And in fact, what's great about this kind of literature is that it builds on itself. You have to continue reading to understand the flow of it. But what's fascinating about ancient Jewish meditation literature is the absence of detail. Have you ever read the Bible and felt like, I wish, I wish you would have given me more detail there? Anybody ever felt that way before? Like, there's, there's big pieces missing that I wish God would have told me about. Just case in point. I, I wish I would have known the John's last name so I know who was who. There's a John the Baptist, there's an Apostle John, and I, sometimes I don't know. Then there's first, second, and third John. Are they related? I, don't, I mean, are they sons? How does this work? Last names would have been helpful for me. But there are always details that we're missing out on. And as Americans, um, man, we love us some details, don't we? It's why we love Google. Uh, it's why we love some news channels and not others. It's, it, it's why you love social media because you get all the details on social media. The problem with details is this, and if you've ever talked to a middle schooler, you understand this. Um, if you tell me all the details, two things are going through my mind. One of the first thing is I think you're lying because you gave me too many details. The second thing is this, I don't know what details is important because you gave me all the details. What's beautiful about scripture, being ancient Jewish meditation literature, is that the details that we are given are the important details. We often ask questions to fill in the gaps that the authors never meant for us to know because that's not important in the grand narrative of scripture. So I'll point out one of those here in a second. So ancient Jewish meditation literature, second is this, Exodus fits in with, into the first five books of the, of the Old Testament that we call the Pentateuch, which means five book series. It's a series of books. It all fits together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, which actually matters, by the way, um, numbers has a story in it, not just Numbers. Probably could have named it differently, but that, that's what it is. Numbers and then Deuteronomy. It all fits together, and much of it is chronological. So those of you who are complaining the Bible's not chronological, I would say read the first five books of the Bible. They are. We can read through that. But it's the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the books of the law. And many scholars, most would agree with this, that Moses is the one who wrote these books. So they all fit together, which means Exodus is part two of a five-part series. 
And so we can't just jump in there without understanding what's happened before that. So let us give us some context as means of review from last week. Genesis chapter one, God creates the world. Everything is as it should be. He creates man and woman. Uh, they sin. But this is what he says in verse 27 of chapter one. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then verse 28, and God said to them, he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, circle underline these words, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So he gives them a command and he says, you've been created in our image, in the image of the triune God, you've been created. Now, do these things. So Adam and Eve do those things, they end up falling into sin, there's a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden, there's a serpent who talks, which gives us all sorts of questions, but he talks, uh, deceives them into sinning, Eve sins, Adam follows her into sin, and they are finally, their relationship with God is shattered and disconnected, and the relationship with each other is shattered and disconnected. So God does what he does, and God shows up. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our uh, separation, God intervenes. They have put together fig leaves to cover themselves, which sounds terribly uncomfortable, but they put those on. And God recognizes the problem with fig leaves is they will ultimately die. And so our own coverings won't last. And so God steps in and by the blood of an animal gives them covering for, their, uh, for what separates them. And he gives um, consequences to the man and the woman. And then in verse 15 of Genesis 3, he speaks to the serpent. And he says, I, this is the curse for you, I will put enmity, distance, anger, hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So if this is a narrative, I want us to figure out some main characters here. God is the good guy, right? God's the hero. And so God will be the hero. From Genesis to Revelation, God is the hero. And there is an arch nemesis. There is an enemy. And he takes the form of a serpent in the garden. This is Satan, the evil one. And God has this conversation with him. And what God tells him is, I'm gonna fix all of this. And here's my game plan. There's gonna come an offspring of the woman. And you might get his heel, but he's gonna crush your heads. This is my game plan. Now, details matter. And we haven't been given many as far as detail. But God drops this word here in Genesis 3, and he uses the word offspring. Circle it, underline it in your Bible. You're gonna remember this. Offspring. Now, this is, I don't know that coaches do this and probably should do this or generals, but God essentially tells Satan, here's my game plan. We give the enemy too much credit sometimes and that we think he's omnipotent. He's all powerful and all knowing. He's not. He only knows what he's been told. And God tells him in Genesis 3, here's how I'm gonna fix it and here's how I'm going to destroy you. So the enemy then is hell bent on making sure God's plan doesn't come through. And if God's plan is an offspring, what do you think the enemy's plan is? Well, he's gonna destroy any offspring. I want you to think about scripture as much as you know. I want you to think about how many genealogies are mentioned in scripture. Could it be because we were given a detail in Genesis chapter three that God wants to continue throughout? I want you to think about how many times in scripture women were barren and could not have children. I want you to think about in scripture how many times uh, political leaders, religious leaders called for the sacrifice of children. 
If this is one big story that points to Jesus, wouldn't it make sense we're gonna get some clues in the first part? So God says, here's my plan. It's gonna be with an offspring through the woman. Now, Genesis continues, and if you follow the line, um, then we meet Cain and Abel, which feels like, well, God said offspring. These are the first ones. It might be them, and so the enemy intervenes and takes care of that problem, doesn't he? That continues, and then we know about Noah. The enemy intervenes and takes care of that problem, and so now we don't have any more offspring. That happens. He destroys everybody. God sends the flood, and now it's just Noah and his family. We continue forward, and then we meet Abram, and God says, I'm, I'm gonna bless the world through your offspring. And the problem is that Abram is old, and his wife is also old, and she is barren, so how will God do this? We trace that through. They have, uh, Abram has a son outside of his marriage, but then finally Sarah gives birth to a son named Isaac. And if you, you follow all of this, you start to see the journey here. We get further into Genesis, and uh, we meet Jacob, and we meet his sons, one of his sons, the youngest one named Joseph, the one with the bright coat. And Joseph is loved by his father. He's the favorite. And the older brothers hate him. And so they beat him up and they leave him for dead. And they go back and they tell their father, oh, here's his coat with blood on it. He, he died. Some travelers come by and they pick him up out of this pit and they take him and he ends up in Egypt. And in Egypt, now he uh, becomes known by Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh loves him. Pharaoh trusts him. He interprets dreams for Pharaoh, all sorts of things. And he rises to some sort of power in Egypt. There's a famine in Israel where Joseph's brothers and father are and the only place they can go for food is Egypt. And so they run to Egypt to ask for food and as luck would have it, they have to stand before Joseph. And there's this moment, if you're watching this on a screen, like, yeah, now's the time, Joseph, do your thing. Like, now, now's the time. Sneak up behind him, whatever you need to do. And Joseph forgives them. He says, yeah, here's some grain, go back. All sorts of things happen. But the end of Genesis in chapter 50, we're given a clue as to how God's going to work and what he's going to do in the remaining days. Verse 19, he, Joseph says this to his brothers, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. God meant what for good? Well, God meant the mistreatment of his brothers. God meant him being left in a pit for dead. God meant him making his way to Egypt for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive, or some translations say that many should be saved as they are today. This is the hinge for us into Exodus. Then verse 21, do not fear, he says to his brothers, I will provide for you and your little ones, your offspring. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Everything is building to this moment. Joseph, the kind of the last remaining offspring that we know of that's, that's gonna carry this lineage forward now finds himself in Egypt and he has a, a conversation with other offspring and, and he chooses grace over the law. And there's this moment and he says, and by the way, what you meant for evil, God meant and turned for good. And I don't, I don't know if you know the rest of the Bible, but that verse is the rest of the Bible. That's it. That's the story of scripture right there. What the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. So then that is what carries us forward into Exodus chapter one. So I want us to keep all this in context. Exodus chapter one, verse six, then Joseph died 
This Joseph of Genesis 50, what God, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. This Joseph, he died, and all his brothers and all that generation, 70 of them who had come into Egypt. But the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Fruitful, multiplied, and filled. Those words sound familiar? Because Moses is telling us here there's a new beginning happening. Now, what's interesting is this word filled in verse seven is actually the Hebrew word for swarmed, which we might see again in the plagues. I would just say, remember that, it's coming. The land was swarmed with Israelites. As if to say, it's kind of annoying. There's that many of them. Verse eight, now. He's saying, turn the page now. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And not that he didn't know his name or know about him, but he didn't intimately know Joseph. In other words, he, he didn't think as highly of Joseph as the other Pharaoh did, the other king. So Moses, this is foreboding, saying, oh, dark days are ahead. Things are changing for the people of God. He didn't know Joseph. Remember, Joseph found favor with the other Pharaoh, and now he's got a new one in charge. And Pharaoh said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So we're gonna meet two kings here. We met this one, Pharaoh. And notice what drives this king, the king of man, is fear. He's afraid of the Israelites because of how many there are. And the fear is not that they're gonna be good at war or that they're strong or they could fight well. The fear is there's so many of them that if they were to escape and, and partner with one of our enemies, it would be bad for us. We have to make sure they don't escape the land. It's fear that's driving this king. Therefore, verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Now, this seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? We don't want them to hate us. Let's make them hate us more. We don't want them to revolt against us. Let's, let's make their lives miserable. But what they're doing, and like every oppressive force has ever done in the history of, of the world is, they're not trying to, uh, to earn their love. They're trying to destroy their will to live. And so they oppress and they make it harder to do their work. They afflict them with heavy burdens. And on top of that then, they make them, they make the Israelites, they make them build these great cities of Pithom and Ramses. Store cities where they store artillery and weaponry. They make them build these cities. Trying to indoctrinate them and kill their will to live. But then verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. It's almost as if what they intended for evil, God meant for good. So they intend oppression to destroy their will to live and their will to multiply. They want the parents in Israel to say, why would I bring kids into this world? I'm not gonna do it. They wanna beat them down so much physically and emotionally they can't connect intimately with their spouse. And yet, they multiply because what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. 
So they have to up the ante in verse 13. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and they made their lives bitter. Circle that word, that'll come back up. That word in the Hebrew is mara. They made their lives bitter, how? With hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So there's evil, right, in the person of Pharaoh and in his leadership. But what we know, if you paid attention in following Jesus at all, is that there's more going on behind what's going on, isn't there? So behind this is what we've been given in Genesis chapter three, that there is a hero, God, and there is an enemy, the evil one, and the evil one has pawns, namely Pharaoh. So he's controlling the evil. And what it feels like in Egypt is that evil has won the day. What it feels like is these people of God, the ones that God had promised to Abraham, and and he told Abraham, there's coming a day, there'll be so many descendants of yours, there'll be more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And what's happening is that that is actually happening, and yet they're being oppressed by a, a slave master, by an evil king. Verse 15, now the king of Egypt recognizes their continued to multiply and he says to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. Now, a birth stool would be two stones and this actually came from Egyptian um, from the Egyptian medicine field. They had similar things like midwives, but what they believed about birth is that it was a sacred thing. And that anyone who would give birth to a child as a midwife or a nurse was actually a goddess. And so when that would happen, they would put these two stones down for the goddess of fertility to sit on and be a part of. And so these became sacred. And so what he tells the Hebrew midwives says, hey, when you sit on the two stones, when you sit on the birth stool, And not to be too graphic, but as as the child is coming out from the womb and you see the gender of the baby, if it's a boy, kill him right there. And if it's a girl, let her live. Now, we read this and it's just words on a page. I, I want you to think about this. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh says, as a mother is giving birth, and you see male genitalia kill the baby. Nine months of carrying the baby, excited about what's gonna happen. They didn't have the 20-week checkup to see the gender. They didn't have to pop balloons to figure out what, what gender the baby was gonna be. And so the, they, have to, they know then. And the woman is hoping for a girl. And I know you do too, but this is different. Like, needs one so it would keep living. And the midwife says, it's a boy. And you don't hear the shriek of oxygen coming in. You hear the shriek of oxygen going out of the baby. And we've got a million Israelites at this point. So it's not like it's happening a couple times a year. Little newborn baby boys are being slaughtered because of the fear of the king. 
The Israelites are being beaten daily. They're being told what they're producing isn't enough. They need to produce more. It's gonna get worse for them as we read through Exodus, but it's just bad. And these are supposed to be the people of God. They're supposed to be the ones rescued. They're, they're the ones in which the offspring will crush the head of the serpent. They're waiting for that. It sure feels like it's not gonna happen. Dark, dark days in Egypt for the people of Israel. But details matter, right? The details matter. So look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Details matter, and we're given the names of two midwives. We were given names earlier of the sons of Jacob, and that's fine, but a lot has happened, and we're not given any names, and then finally we're given two names, the names of two midwives. Shifra, whose name means beauty, and Pua, whose name means splendor. In the midst of the dark days for the people of Israel, God has planted beauty and splendor. Beauty and splendor are there. And beauty and splendor fear the Lord. They don't fear the king. They don't fear the Egyptians. They fear the Lord. In the darkest of days, God has provided beauty and splendor. Now, what we have to learn historically and in context is that these Hebrew midwives, this wasn't really a chosen profession for them. Hebrew midwives do not... Um, go to OB school and they don't, that's not like a, uh, they don't grow up as little girls wanting to be midwives. Hebrew mid women become midwives when they are barren and cannot have their own children. So they're relegated to this role because they cannot bring children into the world through their womb. They are tasked with still bringing women into the world through the womb of other women. These are the Hebrew midwives. So now we can talk about the dark days of Egypt. But if you've ever walked through seasons of infertility, you understand the dark days of a barren woman, don't you? The hopelessness and the fear and the pain. And the month after month pain of it. And can you imagine these women now are watching other women give birth? intimately watching it all happen. If it's dark for the Israelites in Egypt, it's darker for the midwives. Watching and having to go through their own pain every time. And then on top of that, you've got a king saying, oh, and by the way, I don't value children at all. I don't value uh, life at all. Kill the voice. So these Poor women, Shifra and Pua, are tasked. And then what's interesting is that the Hebrew word here for these kind of midwives, there are midwives who would give birth to kind of the easy ones, the ones who would come out naturally and quickly. And then there were midwives who were a little more uh, advanced or who had done it longer, and they were tasked with, with the more difficult births. That's the word used here in the Hebrew for these midwives. So they're fighting for life. They're fighting for some other woman to give birth. And it's dark for them. And sure, they're, they're, there's joy for them for the other women, but when they go home at night, it's just, well, why, why not me? 
Why couldn't it have been me? And it's dark for them. But what we know about these women is that they feared God. There's a rabbi who came years after this who had said something along the lines of, there's no chance of fearing God until you get the love of God within you. So you wanna know why they feared God? Because they loved him. Because they believed even when I don't see it, you're working. And they made a decision that even in the midst of all of their pain, in the midst of their barrenness, they would still bring forth life. And they would run to the pain, not from it. They wouldn't wallow in it and wallow themselves off from it, but that Shifra and Pua, beauty and splendor said, I know it's painful for me, but if there's a shot that I can help bring life, I'm in. So in the midst of dark days, there's beauty and splendor. Author of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. No, we're called to fear the Lord, but the question and the evidence is, do you hate evil? Because they hated the thought of these little boys being murdered. So Shifra and Pua now have stepped in to save the offspring of the woman. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and he says to them, why have you done this? Why have you let the male children live? And the mid, uh, man, the midwives, they say to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like your women. I mean, come on. You're called to Pharaoh because you objectively disobeyed his orders. And then you attack his women? It's like, oh, wife, wife, oh, well, it's because you gotta understand, Hebrew women are way better than the Egyptian women. <laughs> they go on to say they are vigorous. They are full of life. Which, what a terrifying thing for him to hear. You know what he spent his life doing? Destroying the lives and will to live of Hebrew women. And Shifra and Pua say, well, here, here's the problem. They still got a lot of life in them, so I don't know what to tell you. They're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. Verse 20, and God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied, Genesis 1, and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh's still not happy, verse 22, and Pharaoh commanded all his people, all right, fine. Well, then every son that's born to the Hebrews, throw him into the Nile River. But you should let every daughter live. Which is funny, because it's Shifra and Pua, two daughters, who are helping the Hebrews win the day. Not men, vigorous women who are helping win the day. So a few things for us to pick up on. One is this, God always uses the unexpected. Women are a commodity here. They're bought and they're sold, particularly barren women. They're traded for cattle. 
And we're in the second book of this five-book series, and we've already seen some women, haven't we? And these two women, Hebrew midwives, have become the heroes who continue the line of the offspring. Second is this, in verse 22, Pharaoh's decision is, well, then just throw all the babies in the Nile. We're gonna read in just one more chapter, there is a baby thrown into the Nile. And God uses that Nile, what the enemy meant for evil, God uses it for good because he uses the current of the Nile River to take this little baby Moses into the family of Pharaoh. You need to hear this today. Whatever the enemy is up to, he's playing checkers and God's playing chess. Whatever pain you're feeling and suffering you're feeling and inadequacy you're feeling, the enemy might have won the battle, but God's won the war. In Genesis 50, 20, it remains true. What the enemy meant for evil, God, in fact, intended for good. So we're gonna wrap up, and as Mallory comes up, just a couple questions for us in dark days. First is a statement for you that in the darkest of days, God has planted beauty and splendor. He has. The question is whether or not we're gonna see it but he has. And like the song said, we can look back on the days and see his hand, but I wanna encourage you to do it in the present rather than waiting until the end. Do it now, look for his hand now. Look for the beauty and splendor in the midst of it even today. And the second statement is this, you might just be the beauty and splendor God's planted in somebody's dark day. You might be it. And maybe like these Hebrew midwives, you've walked your own pain and you're walking in your own season of barrenness and pain and hurt and wondering where God is and you've got a decision to make. Do you run to the darkness of sorrow or do you you run to the light of the beauty and splendor of God? And we can complain and we can be disgusted and we can uh, throw pity parties and we can and sometimes we should. But there are a people in a dark day who need the beauty and splendor God's placed in you at your school and at your workplace and on your son's baseball team and at your church and in your small group And Shifra and Pua had a decision to make about their pain and they chose to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And maybe today that's what you need to hear. That maybe you've grieved long enough, maybe you've sorrowed long enough and there's someone who needs you. And in walking right back into the thing that's caused you pain, you're actually gonna bring life. But here's what it requires for you, that you fear God. The word fear is an awe and a respect. It's the reason why lions are kept behind bars at the zoo. And we can marvel at them and their power. So when, when it says they feared God, what they meant was, I know that God is more powerful than even this king of Egypt. So I'm gonna do what he says. I'm gonna take his side. For some of us today, that's what you need to grasp today. He's the lion of Judah. He's all powerful. He's sovereign. And no king stands a chance. 
If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes today and just let the words of scripture wash over you. First statement that there's beauty and splendor for you in your dark days. I wonder if you would just raise your hand and say, I, I need to find it, help me. Do you raise your hand and say, I don't, I'm having a hard time saying beauty and splendor. I, I don't know that I believe you today. I wanna believe it. Praise the Lord for your honesty. And there's some of us today who I, I think you already know. You already know what God's called you to do and where he's called you to be, but you've wallowed rather than worship. And today's the day you draw a line in the sand and you bring life. Maybe today what you need to hear is that the offspring that was spoken of in Genesis chapter three, he did come. Born to a woman named Mary, a stepfather named Joseph, the very son of God, offspring of a woman. And while the enemy nipped at his heel and he caused pain and suffering, that offspring, that Jesus, crushed the head of the enemy. And on the cross, he declared, it is finished. Final blow to the serpent was the empty tomb in which to say the one thing you had, the one weapon you had of death, even I've taken that from you. And so when the resurrection of Jesus is the culmination of Genesis chapter three, the offspring has won and that's what it means to follow Jesus, to believe that he is one. To believe the empty tomb is enough to grant you back into right relationship with God and with each other. If you would just admit that you need him, that you're a sinner, believe that he's the savior who has saved and redeemed you and then you live like it. It's where salvation is to be found. It's where freedom is to be found. I'll invite you to that uh, this morning that you would just pray and ask him to forgive you of your sins and save you from them. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the chance to gather today. Lord, I do pray for safety as we go from this place, Lord, but I think even more importantly, God, I pray for spiritual rescue for us today. We can be all kinds of safe in the world, but if, if we're still entangled in bondage, Father, I don't know what kind of safety we have. So I'm asking for freedom. For those of us today who need to see beauty and splendor in our dark days, God, would you open our eyes to it? And for those of us who actually are that, we are the Hebrew midwives, Father, would you give us courage to move out of our wallowing and into worship that we might bring a light to a dark place? It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.